Welcome to Flushing is Burning. Grace, how are uh, you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing better than the Mets did this weekend. They, uh, they did not do very well. We are recording on Monday, August 14th, and the Mets avoided a sweep. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is they were outscored 40 <laughs> to 10 by the best team in baseball, I think we can say. But yeah, they weren't terribly competitive at all for three out of their four games this yeah, weekend. Yeah, I was... Um... I was lucky. I think I, I I missed both of Saturday's games, including the uh, the massive twenty one to three loss because I was at work, and I think that that was for the best. Um, and yesterday they avoided the sweep; they won seven to six, but they got through that game by the skin of their teeth. And it required a very very good game past the first inning by their best starting pitcher. It required a fifth inning that saw them score more runs in one inning than they had scored in the previous three games. And it required a very nervy uh, bullpen appearance where the, the first at bat that we see post Senga leads to a home run and you think, ah, yeah, here we go again. This is, this is the Braves doing Braves things and they're going to, finally sweep the Mets, but uh, it, it didn't happen. There was uh, one game of reprieve, I guess, from, from this losing Yeah, I streak. mean, to starting today, they, they faced the Pirates, who aren't doing too hot themselves. So hopefully this series at least isn't as um, unwatchable, uh, because this, this was – this was pretty bad. Like, they just, they just won the Cubs series earlier in the week, and you thought, oh, okay. That was a nice little break from the, what, seven-game losing streak they had going since the trade deadline. Uh, I'm thinking that the rest of the season is going to be a lot like this Brave series and that first week after the trade deadline than anything else. These post-deadline Mets have me thinking about a lot of things, but the primary thing that's on my mind is I, I think I realized that in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen a Mets team actively tank. I've seen Mets teams go for it and not do very well, a la the 2002 Mets. I've seen Mets teams half-heartedly go for it. That's the entirety <laughs> of the Wilpon era. But I've, I've never seen a Mets team that waves the white flag in the middle of the season, sells off all of their assets, and makes it very clear that the future is what they're focusing on, and the future is not necessarily next year. It might be the year after that. And it it has me wondering about the emotional toll of tanking and the price that is paid by players, by coaches, by fans, when an organization that is built around this idea of competing decides not to compete anymore and this last Braves series over the weekend like really hit the nail on the head of of this this conflict that has to be raging inside the Mets organization between people in the front office that are doing everything by the book what their their strategy makes a lot of logical sense but they also employ highly highly paid professionals whose only motivation is to compete and to try to win, and yet they're operating 
under not necessarily orders because like the front office is never going to order the players to be uncompetitive, but they're operating under a non-competitive scheme, a non-competitive plan. And I have to wonder what kind of conflict that creates inside an organization like this. Well, and I have to, you know, you have to imagine. Yes. So Lindor, Pete Alonso, these guys, they're not going to go out there and try to lose. No, no one on this team is going to try actively to lose just because that doesn't benefit them long term either. If they have terrible stats this year, especially some of the newer guys, that's not going to help them maintain major league jobs. That's not going to help them in arbitration cases, anything like that. But the issue is that they are employing at this point because they traded off their assets and they are undergoing what is hopefully a short-term tank. Um, they're, They're employing people who are barely major leaguers and they're playing the way that barely major leaguers would play against a team as good as the Atlanta Braves. And it's got to be disheartening for both the people on the team, Nimmo, Lindor, Alonzo, who have been on good teams before, who have, I mean, in Lindor's case, made it all the way to the World Series before to be playing for this team that is clearly, this isn't a opaque, oh, well, we just fell a little short this time. They are clearly tanking. It's got to be disheartening for them. And it's also got to be disheartening for the players who are trying to maintain a major league job because this is what the end goal is, is to stay here and to come out and to look terrible because you're being put in a position to fail. They're not being put into a position to succeed. I think that's really, it's not, of course, like you said, the front office isn't going to tell the players lose, but they're going to put them in positions that will make it so extremely difficult to succeed. And yeah, it's got to be emotionally draining and mentally draining to be there and sort of you know, I can only imagine what it's like for some of the guys on the lower end of this bullpen who, hell no, hell, who knows if they're going to stick around past this year. This could be their cup of coffee in the majors, and they're looking like this. It's got to be, it's got to be terrible for them. If you're a fan of a bad team in 2023, let's say the Washington Nationals or the Kansas City Royals, you can at least be comforted by this idea that you're watching the kids play. You're watching potentially the future, but that's not what happens with a tanking team. That's not what is happening with the Mets. As you mentioned, the players that are getting a cup of coffee right now, Abraham Almonte, DJ Stewart, Danny Mendek, these are AAA, quadruple-A players that are having their tryout in the worst possible circumstances with no intention from the front office to seriously consider them as players for the 2024 Mets. If this team was legitimately thinking about the future and wanting to play the young guys, we would see Francisco Alvarez play more often. We would see Brett Beatty at third base instead of Mark Ventos. We'd see Ronnie Mauricio being called up and Jeff McNeil being put into a corner outfield position. Like this you don't even get the comfort of at least I get to see the future. At least I get to see the young guys try to figure it out in the majors because the people that are trying to quote unquote figure it out in the majors, we already have a good idea of who they are and they're not major leaders. Yeah, I mean, even even looking at the bullpen, there's guys like Nate Lavender who's down in AAA and my guess is he'll probably stay there through the rest of the season because – why are you going to start the clock on him in this lost season when you know what you got with Trevor Gott and it's not great, but it's exactly what you need if you're going to tank through this season. 
I mean, it sucks to be a fan, too, to sit there and watch this. And like you said, if you're a fan of the Nationals, the Royals, you're watching your future play, you know, and this isn't for the Mets. Hopefully this isn't a situation like I, I can only imagine what it must be. must have been like for like a 2019 Orioles fan to sit there and go, well, we got Adley. He's three and a half years away, apparently. But, you know, he's we, we got him. But at the same time that team played out the string for three and a half years. This hopefully, knowing what we know about Steve Cohen, will only be through the end of this year. Um, but it doesn't make it any easier to watch. You're just sitting there and you're, you know, like I said, watching new and exciting ways to lose, like watching relief pitcher Danny Mendick give up eight runs, which was insane. <laughs> that that was the microcosm of everything, right? Like that encapsulated all of the feelings I have about this team right now because yes, that's the quote unquote smart baseball decision. You don't want to put any extra stress on your relievers for a game that is unwinnable. And so you put out a quadruple A player on the mound to throw softball pitches and hope that he will run into three outs. And I watched the entirety of that inning, and it was painful. And you could tell how stressful it was for Mendek, how stressful it was for the rest of the Mets' defense that couldn't do anything about the lollipop base hits that the Braves were hitting. But they just kind of had to smile and grit their teeth through it because they're professionals and they know what's going on, but they're professional competitors. Like, they're not in this game to follow instructions to lose in the most effective way possible. They're they're here to win, and that's what fans are here for. And so I have to wonder what it does to their psyche and also to the entertainment value for fans that pay money to see a team that's actively trying to lose. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of games left in this 20-game pack, and um, I'm pretty sure most, if not all of them, are promotional days, which are really the only reason why I'm going on Tuesday and I'm getting that bobblehead and I'm also going to sit in the stands and watch the Liberty play on my phone because I'm much more invested in the Liberty versus Aces game that's happening that day than I am the Mets versus Pirates game. Um, I mean, luckily, it sucks if you're in the stands because you, you're sitting there and I totally, <laughs> totally understand, and I would not be surprised that this is my situation over the next few months. Totally understand if you want to leave early, you know, you're not getting everything you paid for, but are you really getting anything you paid for? Um, but at home, at least, thank God we have Gary, Keith, and Ron. I mean, they're, they've done this before, and they'll do it again. They're going to get us through the rest of the season, come hell or high water. There's such pros. They There was a game this past week where they had Hank Azaria, in the booth and it was funny because like hank azaria whenever he makes like a public um uh a public promotional tour it's always in support of something that he's doing but he said on the front end i'm on strike i can't promote anything right now so i'm just gonna talk baseball with you guys and it, it was really fun to hear a celebrity who's so invested in the mets as much as we are complain about what's going on but he ended his 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 thoughts by saying well you have to be here every day. I feel bad for you. And immediately, both Keith and Gary were like, no, 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 no. That is not an issue. That is not a problem. This is our job. We love doing this. And I, I wonder how much of that is the company line and how, how carefully they have to tow that. But they also seem sincere when they say that, like, yeah, this is a job that they love doing and they love being 
um, being, I guess, stewardesses for us through this tank and basically talking us down from the ledge whenever we see an eight run uh, eighth inning. Um, or maybe it was the ninth inning. It doesn't really matter, does it? Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's very, very nice to have the best booth in the game be very understandable and professional through all of this because that's the only way that anyone's going to tune into these games. I mean, I don't really care to watch the national broadcast because these Fox and ESPN broadcasts, like, A, they weren't very good, but B, they also weren't very kind to, <laughs> to what the Mets were doing. And so it's... Uh, it's nice to have someone on your side, you know, whisper sweet nothings into your ear while like the shellacking is going on on your television. I they had that um that 18th anniversary special, you know, celebrating their 18 years in the booth, and I think that there's also something where like even on the bad games, they seem to have like a really great time. So I, I genuinely do believe that they're probably like, yeah, they'd rather watch a winning team, but they're not going to have a bad time with a losing team, and and it's something that. I mean, we talk about how great they are all the time, and everyone knows how great they are. I mean, listening to that Sunday Night Baseball um, broadcast last night, I was struck every time. Every time it annoyed me so much. There would just be like 10, 15 seconds of just completely dead air, and it was – you don't realize. You take for granted what they do. It really is. It's just co- – they're constantly talking. There's always some sort of conversation going on, whether it's related to the game or not. You're always listening to them, and it makes – a bad game okay and a good game better like that's they're just they are such pros at this and it's we're so lucky that we get to have them and i it bums me out sometimes to think that we are almost certainly on the tail end of this like i don't see this going on for much longer so i tend to try and really enjoy each game while i can but god 18 years of them and they're still this good and they're still having this much fun and it's it's just, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure every time. They're the reason why I'm still tuning into games because I could very easily find other things to do with my time, but I could just, I I, I like listening to them. I don't live in the tri-state area, so I don't have access to SNY. How was the documentary? It was really, really good. It was like 40 minutes or something like that. It was, you know, fluffy, but it was, it was fun. It was basically like a, you know, hagiography of them and, and talked about, you know, the, the Nelson, Kiner, Murphy booth that came before them and how important they are to fans. And it did genuinely get me a little emotional at times because I, you know, I grew up here and I've, this is, this, this is my Murphy, Nelson and Kiner. Like they are the guys who that's the voice of baseball to me. So it was really nice to see that. And like, hear everyone talk about how great they were and they talked to Gelbs, they talked to Burkhart, they took, you know, all sorts of people. Of course, Howie Rose was somehow still a crank in it. Um, it. It was just, it was, it was nice to sort of sit there and really consider the fact that this, this is who we have. And it's so nice to have them that, you know, every other booth in baseball can't compete with that. I know you said he was a crank in it, but I first heard crank in it and I was like, I didn't know it was that kind of movie. And I don't know if I need to see Howie Rose doing that. SNY after dark. I think that's a good place to leave it. We're going to come back with some more baseball. Okay, and we are back. So um, looking a little bit past the misery of the the current Mets, we had a, a little... 
a little leak into the New York Post this week about how Justin Verlander may or may not have been a bit of a diva in the clubhouse this year, and that that may have been the source of some of the issues within the um, noted differences between this and this year's and last year's clubhouse. Um, I saw the screenshots, but I, I do have the article open as well. Um, I know one of the one of the issues he brought up was the difference in the analytics department, which like buddy of course the 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 astros have been doing this for gosh like a decade and a half you read that i read that um that book the the evan drellich book winning fixes everything like they they've been doing this a while and like the it sounds like cohen walked in and there was like two guys in an empty office with one 2000 mac computer between them like i i i don't understand how he was shocked by this uh yeah that's the funniest part to me and again this is this is all speculation because a it's the post b it is an unnamed player airing grievances what i find interesting about this well two things i find interesting one i'll i'll save for later but um it's to me it's super interesting hearing a baseball player being called a diva because that's not something we get very often that is a term that is usually saved for like quarterbacks wide receivers and the occasional basketball player and soccer players as well they get that but if there's any baseball player that has earned that title i think the person who's won an mvp as a pitcher three cy young awards a world series and married a swimsuit model yeah i can kind of understand him being a diva (laughs) yeah it's 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 funny like this whole thing is so funny this this strike this reminds me of the the you know this is such a new york sports media thing like Jacob deGrom leaves last year and there's immediately like he leaves and 30 seconds later the post has published six different hit pieces on him and someone gets traded there's a it's great that even though the Wilpons have gone that we still have this insanity I mean it's not coming directly from the Wilpons anymore but it's it's just so stupid who gives a shit is really my thing like okay and the season's lost at this point. This isn't like a um, this isn't gonna save anything at this point. I don't care. He left. He didn't say anything bad on the way out. And even if he did, who who cares? He was here for t- three months. Like this isn't gonna make or break the rest of my life. Um, yeah. I just I think this is so funny that they're immediately like ready to go with these. Also, it's a baseball team. Like, if if you're going to be a singular diva, who cares? Because your 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 contributions to the team don't really involve others. Like, you can be 2002 Barry Bonds, the biggest diva we've heard of in the game probably ever, and still take your team to the World Series. You can be 2023 diva Justin Verlander and still be the best pitcher on the team. I care about one relationship of his. Does he get along with the catchers that he pitches to? Because if he doesn't get along with anyone else, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, it's... And in baseball, especially, like you said, you know, bonds and stuff, but it's so difficult for like one person to really destroy Justin Verlander being a diva is not the reason why the Mets fell apart this year. The Mets fell apart this year because every single person underperformed at one point at multiple points and 
at the wrong times and nothing ever clicked into place. Now, whether that's a larger clubhouse issue is one thing, but I'm going to find it difficult to believe that a room of 26 guys that a singular Justin Verlander going, hmm, boy, I really wish their analytics department was better, was the reason that this team sunk like the Titanic. Like, th- this is so stupid. It was, now, and this is the thing with baseball. There's going to be different, we've talked about this before, there's going to be different clicks. I'm sure Verlander had guys on the team he got along with, and he had his own little, you know, one, two, three, four, five friends. Who cares? It's it's this isn't basketball where LeBron James can carry the desiccated carcass of the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers to the championship. This is baseball. There's 26 guys on this team. If if his problems, if his diva behavior was that destroying to this team, I think that the rest of the members of this team need to take a long hard look at themselves. That 2016 Cavs team was pretty good. It's the 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 2018 team. That, okay, that maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Regardless, um, the other thing I want to bring up is uh, who do you think linked this? Because I I have a couple of theories about who this unnamed Mets player was, but I'm curious uh, to hear your thoughts. Um, now, listen, like he keeps getting named, so I assume like. <laughs> It'd be really funny if this was Scherzer. Like that would be really the one that I'd be like, this is this is this would be really funny if he's also named multiple times in here and then also is just a Met. Um, I mean, if it's a if it's a current Met, I have no idea who would be leaking this because I I, I don't know these guys. Like this is, I I don't know. I I don't know anyone who would. I don't know. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Maybe that would open it up for me. I I don't think it's Scherzer, if only because. He's demonstrated since becoming um, a, a a member of the executive committee for the Players Association to not throw anyone under the bus for any reason. He's he's a pro. He seems to be very emotional. It wouldn't surprise me if he felt this internally, but I don't think he would bring that to the press. My first thought when I saw this was a young pitcher who profiles a lot like Verlander, who's been struggling in his major league career who probably thought upon Verlander signing yes I can learn something from him I can finally get the MLB uh, advice that I've been searching for and become the ace pitcher that I've been trying to be to me that fits a Tyler McGill (laughs) now I I don't know for sure, because I don't know anything personality-wise. The story that I've created in my head about him trying to search for advice and Verlander going, Psh, no, kind of fits. But I also know that like McGill's under team control, doesn't have you know very much leverage, probably doesn't want to leak anything to the press and put a, put a bad taste in the front office's mouth. And so the second theory I had was a, a pitcher who's very much a team-oriented guy who very much respects the game and respects the sanctity of the bullpen and the clubhouse and someone who's very fiery and very invested in his craft that doesn't necessarily like a diva coming in, making his own decisions, uh, stomping around the place as if he owns the place. And to me, that fits in Adam Adamantavino. I again, I, I don't have anything to substantiate these claims. It would not surprise me, however, if we learned that either of these two pitchers was the source of this leak. 
you know, the, the Tyler McGill one really fits my my brand of being anti-Tyler McGill. It would be really funny if 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 he went to Verlander for advice and Verlander was like, you should be a reliever, bro. And that would be hilarious. Um, <laughs> like, which, yes. Um, but yeah, I could see either of those definitely. Like, the, the scenarios you're creating, I could see them fitting into that scenario. Um, I think it is, yeah, probably a pitcher quite because like what does what, what does any of the position players care about this like is is jeff mcneil really that invested is daniel vogelback really that mad at, this is probably a picture you're correct um yeah i could i could see that i don't know the 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 vibes were off they definitely they definitely were off who knows why um yeah that was that would be i'm i'm on the tyler mcgill side if only because i I like Adam Adovino. I think he's a weirdo and I like him. I don't want to think that he's doing this. I like him too. And I think that's the reason why he would get out there. A, because he's, he's what, a, a 12, 13 year MLB vet. He doesn't really have much to lose by going to the media for this. He, he knows that he's probably lost any chance of uh, another um, high paying short-term deal in the future. And so, yeah, why not go out and, and say these things about Verlander, especially if they're true. Like I, I imagine someone like Adam Adovino has enough clubhouse cachet to, to substantiate these sorts of, uh, of, of claims in a way that Tyler McGill does not. Um, but, uh, again, I, I'm not making any accusations. I'm simply saying it would not surprise me if either of these two pitchers was behind this. I will say I'm looking at the article right now and there's a small little aside in here that says it was a different vibe than last year's rotation had Mike Puma reported as Scherzer and Bassett were free and offering information to the team's other younger pitches pitchers. There you go. McGill. There I we- mean, it could, Peter, <laughs> Peterson is there as well, but Peterson's a lefty going to someone for, if Peterson's going to advice for someone else, I'd assume it's more, someone who fits in his profile. McGill would strike me as someone who'd be like, I'm an ace. Give me your wisdom. And then Verlander's like, no. Yep. Yep. That's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. And I wouldn't begrudge him for that. Like I would yeah, be no. upset too. If I was like on the precipice of something great in my profession and like the one beacon of hope that I have like decides to shut me out entirely. Yeah. I've, I, okay. I'm in on the Tyler McGill theory. All right, there. There is no easy transition to to this next <laughs> bullet point. Um, there are rumors about Tampa Bay's superstar shortstop Wander Franco, um, mostly from Instagram, that he has been grooming an underage girl from the Dominican Republic. That is about all that we can say because there is, as of time of recording, an investigation still pending by Major League Baseball. I would hope that there's also an investigation pending by Dominican police, um, but it has caused a big storm around Major League Baseball in the past couple of days. Uh, Wander Franco was pulled from his start yesterday and did not travel with the team to San Francisco today, and it has created a lot of speculation about what exactly this young man has been doing and what his future in major league baseball or outside of major league baseball will look like. Yeah. It's when I, when I saw this stuff yesterday, it, it was 
chilling and it made me feel sick to my stomach as as allegations of this sort would um we don't know anything there's rumors that that came from instagram there's nothing concrete yet i mean by the time this episode comes out in a couple days there may be more information that we don't know yet um i want to say that um i there's when people keep talking about it they keep saying oh he was dating a 14 year old which you can't if you were an adult you cannot date a child that is like you said that is grooming that is not dating um also one of the most ridiculous things i keep saying this does not have anything to do with how sad it is that you dropped a hundred dollars on a wander franco rookie card i do not give a shit that is not the important thing here burn the card for all i care there's a child here who has been exploited allegedly um there are more important things here than your card collection um or your jersey that you almost bought um it's it's chilling and this is something we keep this allegations like this are are upsetting like there's really there's nothing you can say other than the fact that like it it's deeply upsetting to see this and people are starting to leak this this girl's instagram account and stuff like that trying to say that she wasn't telling the truth and this and that we don't know anything yet all we know are the allegations and there's an investigation going on and at the end of this investigation if the league decides that yes there's an if proof to suspend wander franco i don't want to hear to see this turn into a trevor bauer oh there this girl was a liar if he exploited a child, that is, he should be, you know, arrested. Like you said, I hope the Dominican police are, are investigating this as well. This is, it's, it's disgusting. I don't have anything to add about the specifics of this case. What I will add to everyone who is expressing doubt about the accusations is that we don't hear very much about the personal lives of famous athletes, and that's by design. There, there has been a system that has been constructed over the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years by players, by teams, by agents to ensure that the public knows as little about the private lives of athletes as possible. And so whenever we hear stuff like this come out more than often it's because the person in question is in big trouble i don't have anything else about the specifics of this but the reason why this is making wave after wave after wave in just 24 hours since we've heard it is because this happens so infrequently in baseball, in American professional sports, just in general in the public eye. And so I, I, I don't necessarily begrudge anyone who immediately feels doubt because doubt is just a feeling after all. I, I would just um, hope that they understand the gravity of this situation and how important it is for the facts to be laid out uh, in as timely and effective manner as possible. Yeah. And like you said, doubt is normal to feel. Um, but I would hope that 
you would turn that doubt into hope that this didn't happen because my concern isn't Wander Franco in the situation. My concern is this 14 year old child who may or may not have been exploited. And you don't want this to happen to her because this is for him. This is a legal situation. This is, you know, whatever for her. This is something that could change her, like could and probably will change her life mentally. She will, you know, this, this is, she's being exploited by an adult here. This isn't this, you know, this is, this is, there is such a deep level of, of gravity to this situation that um, I think people don't or can't understand until they really sit down to think about it. But you, you hope this didn't happen because you want her to be okay. You want this child to be okay and safe and, um, and, and not in this situation. Um, but yeah, if, if you're hearing about it, there's probably a reason um, that, that this has come out at this point. And it's, it's so deeply, deeply upsetting and I, I can't I can't imagine that we're not going to have more to say about this if more news about this comes out over the next week, two weeks, month, whatever. Um, but yeah, this is this is a deeply disturbing situation. And um, yeah. Yeah, uh, there was no good transition. There is no good ending to this, uh, but we're going to take another break and be back with some movies. Last week, you plugged Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City, and implored me to watch it, saying that it would be on Peacock, uh, a subscription service that, for reasons, I still subscribe to. And I watched it. And? It was a Wes Anderson film. (laughs) Uh, and and I, I read reviews beforehand that talked about how Wes Anderson in big letters this was, how much he's doubled down on his visual aesthetic and his his dialogue patterns. And you can very much see that. I think Asteroid City is a very dense and complex film. It's visually stunning. And I, I think for that reason, it's really hard for me to go, yeah, it was just okay. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know if I necessarily want to watch it again. And I don't, I don't know if I've really like put my finger on it other than to me, the movie plays out very much like a Sam Shepard play. Uh, I really love the, the setting. It's the, the like, Western desert is something I, I can never get enough of. I liked the 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 double framing device of the story that he was telling. I thought that was supremely clever. And I, I definitely appreciate the the magnitude of the events that he was telling within this story. And but what turned me off a little bit was, when I watch a Sam Shepard play that deals with very similar themes and has a very um, similar aspirational attitude towards the story that it's telling, it often has characters that express big emotions, that have big lines, that speak very loudly. And that's not Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson's style is to have very stoic characters 
with very flat dialogue. And to me, it created this tonal imbalance between what I was watching on the screen and what I was listening to from these characters. And that's a lot of Wes Anderson movies. And so I, I shouldn't be surprised that that was the case. But um, I, I think I would be very happy reading smarter people's analysis of this movie because it was very dense. There was, there was a lot of like really fun ideas that fly by you a mile a minute. I just don't know if I would dedicate another hundred minutes of my life to watching it again. I, I, I get that. You, you put the, the perfect word on this. It is so dense. It's such a dense movie. And that's why I want to watch it again because I feel like I, I got a, surface level maybe just below surface level understanding of what he was going for and i'd really like to watch it at home now i haven't gotten to to rewatching it yet because i've been doing a deep dive on um scorsese um but there's so much going on in that film and it's so i mean it looks gorgeous like you said but it is there's just so much and that that tonal that tonal difference between the the characters and the what they're saying and what what's happening on screen is it's a lot, um, and I, I, I think this is, again, this is a thing where Wes Anderson, I think there's two different groups of Wes Anderson fans, the people who like his pre-Grand Budapest stuff more, and people who like his post-Grand Budapest stuff more. And I think this movie very much appeals to that second group. Obviously, it's post-Grand Budapest, but it, it does fit in with a feather with Grand Budapest, with the French dis- dis- Dispatch, which was something that not a lot of people enjoyed. I quite liked. Um, so yeah, it, it's he's getting a little bit more insular with what he wants to say and getting a little bit more Wes Anderson with what he wants to show. Um, and I'm excited to see what he does next. He has a short film coming out on, a, a short film adaptation of a Roald Dahl story coming out on Netflix later this year, which should be fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, yeah, I, I, t- I totally get it. I totally get, like, sitting in that theater, I was like, this is not going to be for everyone, but the people it's for, it's really going to be for them. Oh, 100% agree. <laughs> like, I, I think this is, this is a carnival for any Wes Anderson fan. And I've seen every Wes Anderson movie except for The French Dispatch. And I don't know what the connective issue, the, the connective tissue is between the movies that I like and the movies that I don't. Because the Wes Anderson movies that I care very much about are Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom. And they're like the movies that like I liked, but probably never going to watch again. That's Grand Budapest Hotel. That's um, Isle of Dogs. That's Fantastic Mr. Fox. And then the rest of them, Royal Tenenbaums, uh, Life Aquatic. Definitely Darjeeling Limited. Those are movies I watched and was like, this is tedious. I do not <laughs> like this whatsoever. And I don't really understand what what stratifies those movies because there there isn't that much of a thematic difference amongst all of them. They're, they very much tonally are, are, are very similar. And they all have... A, a very gorgeous visual palette that should like get me through these movies. But yeah, I Moonrise Kingdom may be like one of my 10 favorite movies of all time. And I can't stand the life aquatic. Like I don't, I don't understand what, what it is about Wes Anderson that tickles me so much and what it is that turns me off so much, but it seems as if every other movie does something different for me. 
It's really funny that you say that because I love Life Aquatic and Moonrise Kingdom is one of those movies I respect, but I do not get why everyone loves it as much as they do. Oh, it's it's because it's for the normies. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's 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 a normie movie. Like I get why it. You know, I I think it was nominated for Academy. But so was Grand Budapest. So, but Grand Budapest, I think, is also one of those like ones that uh, attracts the normies yeah. as much as it gets the film buffs in there. Yeah, I. I it's funny because my top four, I'd say, just because I think it's so difficult for me to separate them at that point, is Royal Tenenbaums. Grand Budapest, French Dispatch, and Asteroid City. So obviously yeah. he's really working for me recently. But like I, and I also don't know what it is about his movies where I don't enjoy Moonrise Kingdom the way everyone else does. Because I think I still should be able to enjoy it almost as much as everyone else does at least. And I just don't. It's fine. I get it. But it's just, mm, doesn't do it for me. But also like, I just rewatched Fantastic Mr. Fox. I thought that was insane. Like, that was great. I love that one. I think it's, it's, he's a filmmaker that I think can, like, movie to movie, he really finds different things to do. I don't know what the connective tissue is there. It's, it's style, obviously, but he does, it's, it's a lot of what he uses the style to do. So I think that there's certain times where he does a lot with the style and that can put people off. I'm really into the style, so. We contain multitudes. Wes Anderson contains multitudes, apparently. Grace, do you have a non-Wes Anderson movie to plug for us this week? I might have one of the most non-Wes Anderson movies to plug this week. Um, I saw this a couple weeks ago, um, and I saw this week that it hasn't been doing too hot at the box office, probably because they chose the worst time to release it in terms of being the week before Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, but I want to plug because I think it's probably going to leave theaters after this week, next week. But also, once it comes out at home, I, I this is just such a fun movie. I think everyone should should take some time to see it. Um, the new Mission Impossible movie is such a hoot. I, it's it's a hoot and a half, quite frankly. Um, it, it's it's everything you want a Mission Impossible movie to be, and then some. Now I've seen some people not enjoy this one, and I would get that because there are times where it gets. A touch cartoony, um, but as someone who loves the adventures of Ethan Hunt, um, there's there's bits in this movie. There's these insane action set pieces. Uh, one on a train where every the train is going off the edge of a bridge, and they get to the top of the car before it falls off the bridge, and they're like, "Whew, we got off that one!" And then the next car starts to fall. They do that four times, and each time you think like you're gonna be like, "Oh, here we go again," but then you're just sucked back into the train car thing again. Um, Palm Clementif, who's in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, um, she is insane in this movie. And I mean that as an insanely good and also her character is literally insane. Um, she's so much fun in this movie. Everyone in this movie is so much fun. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson is in it again. Haley Atwell is great. Uh, Vanessa Kirby shows up. She's great. There's the whole bit where they're right, you know, because they do the mask thing in these movies where they put on a mask and makes them look like someone else and they pull the mask off and oh, it's even Hunt again. Um, they, there's this is one bit where they're running through the airport, like the, the CIA or whoever, and they know that Ethan does the mask thing. So they're running up to people to try and see if it's Ethan Hunt and they're just tugging on their face. It's so funny in these, in these bits. There's a whole thing with a car chase in Italy and they think they're going to get this really good car. And it's this old beaten up Fiat <laughs> that's tiny. It's, there's so many good funny bits in this that really, it, it's so 
it's the perfect Mission Impossible movie. So if you are a fan of action films, Mission Impossible films, Looney Tunes, I think there's something here for you. There is not a single thing you could say to get me interested <laughs> in the Mission Impossible movie. And as you were saying, as the prelude, when you were like, this movie came out a week before, it it got some some disappointing press. Gonna leave. I'm like, no, she's not going to talk about Mission Impossible. Like, just, there's no way. I, I don't like a single action movie. I have never watched an action movie that has ever entertained me, impressed me. I don't know what it is. The spectacle is incredible. The work that it takes to pull stuff off like that is incredible. And I don't like it. I don't know what it is. I don't like action movies. Yeah, I, again, totally get it. If action's not your thing, if this thing is a little cartoony, I personally, again, huge, huge fan of the Mission Impossible movies. I love these movies so much. I'm not the world's biggest action person. I like good action movies. Like, I've seen a decent chunk of Michael Bay's movies, and I think there's, like, one and a half that I actually genuinely enjoy. I thought Ambulance was very fun. Um, But most of the time, action doesn't do it for me unless it's part of something that, like, the action of Indiana Jones, which I'm going to see the new one today, finally, um, or Mission Impossible or anything like that. I'm not a big, like, just, like, any action movie, but if I, if it's a good action movie, I'm gonna have a hoot. I also saw this in 4DX, which is crazy. That's how I saw Top Gun Maverick, too, where the seats move, and it shoots water at you, and they, they pump smells into the theaters, and listen, I get it's a gimmick, but for the right movie, it's a fun gimmick. I, I also have this... <laughs> This uh, this barrier to entry for long-running action series like Mission Impossible or Fast and the Furious, where I haven't seen any of them, so I don't know if it's right for me to watch number seven or number ten. Why I, I didn't see the previous six, I didn't see the previous nine. What, what's the point of, of starting now? I feel like at least with Mission Impossible, there is if you've seen all of them, you have a good idea of what's coming, and you know certain characters for, but. It doesn't, it's not super inaccessible. This isn't like a Marvel movie where you need to see the last 30 films and the TV shows and have played a game and read a book and gone on a scavenger hunt. Um, It's not like that. They basically like, if you know these people, then you know what the connection is before. But within like 15 minutes, it's really easy to just pick up exactly who these people are. Well, uh, that that doesn't (laughs) surprise me for, for a movie as... Uh, widely appealing as Mission Impossible, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I can't say I'm gonna watch that whenever it hits <laughs> streaming. Sorry, Grace. It's all right. I expected that one. We'll we'll get back at it next week. Next week sounds like a good time <laughs> to get back at it. Uh, that was a fun episode, despite all of the the negativity that we were we were talking about. Grace, do you do you have anything to add before we take a week long break? Um, yeah. So as always, um, follow us. I, I love doing this. Follow the, us on Twitter at fibpod and on Instagram at flushing is burning pod. And you can email us at flushingisburning at gmail.com. And I want to take a second. We got a we got a nice email this week. Not someone telling Ooh. us that we shouldn't uh, exist. Um, we got a nice email from a Mary Ellen Leonardi. Um, and 
fantastic. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you just, you know, it does actually make me feel very nice that we got some nice positive feedback. Uh, and I just want to wish her and her life partner, Amy, on their upcoming, uh, you know, congratulations on their upcoming 30th anniversaries. And this is the kind of wow. stuff that you can expect if you email us. I will read it. Thank you, Mary Ellen. That was very kind of you. 30 years. 30 my years. goodness. That's, it's, it's, wow. that is a hell of a long time. What a, what a wonderful thing to, to end on. Thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you next week. See you next week.